This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. And this morning we're looking over the Indian Ocean to South Africa, a pretty interesting place to talk about agriculture at the moment as farmers there grapple with a severe energy crisis. In South Africa now, we are thinking to say, look, how do we ensure that the food, beverages and fibre industry is actually slightly insulated from heavy load shedding so that it doesn't end up presenting the food security risks to the country? Excited to bring you that interview a little later in the program. But first, Serena Locke is here with Rural News. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Clint. We hear a lot about the importance of well-bred and well-trained working dogs. Well, the same applies to working horses. The best quality stock horses were on offer over the weekend. What was the top price? A cool $400,000. Uh, I know, that's extraordinary. You could have bought a beautiful mare that could turn on a penny and camp draft a steer out of a mob. So this was the annual Nutrien Classic horse sale at Tamworth, and it grossed more than last year. The horses were worked around the ring by riders chasing steers while the auctioneer, you know, uh, bid. And Mike Rowland from Nutrien Equine says it's not just the top price mare, Ductacular, who impressed the buyers from around Australia. A phenomenal sale. 17 million and 92,000 was where we finished last night. And indeed, I know there's some deals being done to finalise some of those horses yet. So we will see that grow. The the average price this year, $32,680 in comparison to 26900 last year. So it, it's got a, it, it all goes beautifully from the industry's perspective. But more importantly, it gives breeders the, the faith that they're looking in the right directions, that people you know, are really chasing their stock. There's nothing like a good stock horse. They're just mm. so useful. Very, very useful. And I just looked it up. Last year, we reported on the record price set for a Kelpie, and that was $50,000. So the horse is definitely worth a lot more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They last a bit longer. But while we're in the business of stock sales, bulls were also in the news this week. Yes, it was bulls and semen straws that <laughs> fetched big bucks this week. Ten straws of semen from Australia's most expensive Brahmin bull fetched a significant $24,000. And the technique of artificial insemination has improved. So each straw can now produce 10 calves. So that's, that's pretty impressive in the technology. And the top bred Brahmin bull broke a record in North Queensland and sold for $170,000. Now, the big country Brahmin sale was at Charters Towers in North Queensland. And sale convener Sean Flanagan says more cattle properties are looking for improved genetics, including no horns. Uh, there's been a, a lot of emphasis on the, on the last few years on breeding animals that are polled. Um, and that one bull that sold, the, some of the high priced bulls today were all polled bulls. So producers are looking for, that, uh, for those polar genetics, um, breeding the the horns off them so we don't have to so that we don't for the welfare of the animals and, and um, the safety of, of um, producers that the animals um, don't, don't grow any horns. Let's change industries now. Aussie wines, which were once the number one drop in China before they whacked a 200% tariff on imports, are still trying to find new markets. Yeah, so wine exporters have had a tough 12 months, um, though with just 1% increase in volume of exports, but a 4% decrease in value. And Chardonnay has, has overtaken Shiraz as the number one export variety. Yeah, for the first time in more than 12 years. I think they must have improved the flavour of it. I used to think it tasted like a, a glass of wood. But the I, ABC I, I days are over. <laughs> That's right. Anything oh, but Chardonnay. Oh, OK. <laughs> now, UK's demand for Aussie wine has declined. It's a bit of a wash-up of Brexit and also the economy there being in trouble. Similarly, across Europe, our wine sales dropped because of the war in Ukraine and depressed economies. But sales to Canada and the US slightly increased. And also wine manager for Market Insights, Peter Bailey, says it's interesting to see a taste growing for Australian wine in Southeast Asia. It increased overall by 16%. So the main drivers behind that growth, you know, were Thailand up 118% and Malaysia up 78%. 
Um, but we did see that decline in exports to, to Singapore, down 20%, which offsets some of those gains. Um, but, you know, as we know, Singapore is a, a trading hub and it can be quite volatile in terms of where that wine is then on ship to, to other markets. We're going to hear from a Margaret River winemaker a little later in the program, but I've always stood by the Chardonnay from that part of the world. Absolutely yes. beautiful drop. Yep. No, nice and fruity without too much wood. That's my preference. <laughs> <laughs> If we're going to feed a bigger population, we need to see an increase in grain production and farmers around the world are trying to push the envelope that to grow more grain. Sorry. And farmers around the world are trying to push the envelope to grow more grain. But in short, it takes a lot of nitrogen fertiliser and good sunshine. Yes, and an English grain grower has now set the Guinness World Records for both wheat and barley yields. Tim Lamimum, who crops in the county of Lincolnshire, achieved a wheat yield of 17.96 tonnes to the hectare. Now that beat the previous record of 17.4 tonnes from a New Zealand farmer, Eric Watson, in 2020. Now he achieved that even in the English drought because he had a good water source on the farm. Now he applied plenty of nitrogen, the building blocks of amino acids and hence proteins, and that also encouraged very, very deep root structures. So he's very scientific in his approach, and so it was quite a scientific interview. But in this, in, in this segment, he says it's possible he can keep the high yields in warm, dry years with those clear, sunny, ripening days. We've consistently done that now over the last 10 years. We know we can do that, but we do need incredibly good um, light intensity years like this last one um, to get that extra yield, you know, to get up to that sort of 17, 18 ton hectare. We don't have the sunlight levels that you or New Zealand will have. So we, we have to work off what we get in the UK. But 14, 15 ton hectares, you know, regularly achievable on this farm. Mining sites across Australia are looking to save money and so diesel utes could be on the way out. Yes, yeah, so Sea Electric, the company, has signed a $1 billion deal to convert thousands of diesel utes to electric at a plant in Victoria. Mevco will procure the 8,000 Toyota Hilux and, and Land Cruiser utes, and Sea Electric will convert them. Now, currently the Sea Electric plant is making 150 electric trucks at the plant in Dandenong, and it will go ahead to convert 4,000 vehicles per year. So Mevco CEO Matt Carr says these vehicles will have more towing capacity than other EVs on the market for the domestic use. And that's a factor that will interest farmers, I think. Most of all the architectures of electric vehicles are focused on a vehicle taking off at a rapid speed. What we were looking for was exactly the opposite. We're looking for a high torque or high carrying capacity of the vehicle so that it can maintain speed on steep uh, declines and climbs and carry heavy loads, trailers, uh, men, et cetera, et cetera. It's a pretty interesting space. I'll link to a different podcast called Odd Lots by Bloomberg. They had an episode recently with an ex-Canadian logger who's retrofitting diesel uh, trucks that take the logs down from the mountains. And essentially, they go up using the battery. And because they generate power from the braking on the way down, they, they've recharged the battery by the time they've hit the bottom. Wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, they are starting to introduce the EV trucks for mm. the timber industry in South Australia as well. So, look, it's slowly happening, that's for sure. Well, on that note, diesel is expensive, but mining and farming businesses can claim a fuel rebate and the government is under pressure to drop it. Yes, yeah, so this is the Grattan Institute. It's released a report suggesting Labor could help reduce its deficit in the budget by halving the fuel tax credit. Now, the leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, has said Labor is considering scrapping that FTC in the upcoming budget, but the Agriculture Minister wouldn't buy into that. Murray Watt says there will be no change in the May budget and it's not on his agenda. No, we're not. This is just more nonsense from David Littleproud. I'm sort of getting a bit used to it, really. Um, this guy seems to wake up every day and think about what he can throw at the wall and see if it sticks. And this is just his latest one. So I can categorically tell your listeners that 
This is not on our agenda. We're not working on it. We're not considering it. It's just nonsense from David Littleproud. Last week, it was revealed uh, with some degree of controversy that the national cattle herd had reached its highest point in 14 years. And I guess a similar set of market forces has seen mutton supply surge by almost 80% year on year. And the sale yard swell is causing prices to plunge. Yeah, so we don't don't eat much mutton in Australia. About 90% of it is exported um, because that's where the market is. We eat the majority of lamb in Australia. Um, and so for the first time since 2016, mutton prices have dropped below $3 a kilogram for carcass weight. Now, Meat and Livestock Australia market information analyst Jenny Lim says China is our biggest market. Most of our mutton is exported. There's a huge market for it in China. And um, since China's, uh, they used to have, uh, all through COVID, had some logistical issues, but that has been rectified last year. And so we are seeing China um, take a lot of that mutton. But the mutton exports have remained quite steady across the last couple of years. So um, we're seeing quite consistent export into, into the international market. I have to confess, I do not eat or buy any mutton, Serena. Well, I grew up on it because I grew up on a farm. Same. And, you know, <laughs> That's probably why. <laughs> but it, it's really hard to get in the butchers. So, mm. yes, lucky Chinese. <laughs> hey, Serena, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Quinn. This week, the kids are back at school and we'll join some students who are starting their new school year in a different setting. They're the first high school students to study at a unique nature school in regional New South Wales that has a focus on outdoor learning. We'll meet a family who are marking 100 years of growing grapes and making wine in the Margaret River region of southwest Western Australia, and we'll discover how a couple and their young children have found their ultimate lifestyle business, growing earthworms for backyard gardeners and compost systems. It's a varied job with many facets, including protecting their livestock from predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that, a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and, yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. We'll hear about that hands-on job farming worms coming up. But first today, it's well known that humans and horses can develop quite a special connection. And it's something that longtime horse riding instructor Virginia Turner has seen in her decades teaching people how to work with horses. Reporter Meg Powell dropped in on a lesson at Virginia's property in northwest Tasmania to find out more. Can you flip it back? Yep. This is Gemma. She's in her 30s, works a job at a factory and enjoys taking weekly horse riding lessons at a new school that's popped up in her local area. I ride horses. Mm -hmm. Gemma also has Down syndrome and about 18 months ago had barely even touched a horse. Hello, I'm Meg Powell, and I'm chatting to Gemma and her carer Jackie at this riding school on a beautiful property near Wynyard on the northwest coast of Tasmania. Jackie has been working with Gemma for the past eight years and has noticed big changes in Gemma since she started horse riding lessons here about a year and a half ago. Just her confidence grow is amazing, yeah. And like she used to be quite shaky and, you know, getting up on possum and, you know, she's just really confident and... Yeah, not shaky, are you, Gem? Not at all. No. Yeah, she is very confident and, like, you know, when we go out and have a coffee afterwards, you know, she's quite capable of ordering her own coffee and knowing what she wants. So, yeah, great place. Put it on. Good girl. Now give it the soft brush and give him a... The effect that spending time with horses has had on Gemma is a familiar story for riding instructor Virginia Turner. She's seen it time and time again in her decades teaching people to ride horses. Virginia and her husband Dennis ran a riding school in Tasmania's south for 20 years. But when the water in their dam dried up, it was time for them to move. Um, we moved up here two years ago from Orielton because this is where it was raining and it wasn't down there and we set up the riding school here. I always had ridden and I'd competed and I wanted to 
offer people my experience that I had that I could offer them. Today we had someone here called Gemma who has Down syndrome and I understand you have a fair few people that come through who have disabilities. Yes. Have you noticed some sort of benefit of teaching people with disabilities to ride and connect with horses? Oh, absolutely. Gemma's a prime example because when she first came, as Jackie said, she used to really shake and she just even getting on the horse was a big thing. I never thought we'd be trotting, but she's really quite balanced and quite, as you saw, she may not rise trot, but she's quite comfortable doing that sit trot. I think that's also a measure of the development into confidence. And Mari, her mother, noticed a change within three weeks as to Gemma's level of confidence, her response to questioning or anything. She settled down a lot, matured, all that sort of thing because of her relationship with the horse. We've seen that because of Virginia's teaching style. We've said that in other students, especially when they started off as little fellas and she's still got some of those girls now they're in their 30s. Dennis, um, sounds like Virginia's pretty well got the school covered. What do you actually do around here? Well, <laughs> we'll see all these fences around here, Meg. I did them. <laughs> someone has to do yeah, something. Yeah, someone has to do it. Yeah, I often say my job is to sort of mend things that break and find things that get lost and pick things up that fall over and uh, generally keep away <laughs> unless requested. But no, really, there's a, there's a considerable amount of maintenance required and like with any farm but horses particularly I think because they can be a bit pushy the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. We have two naughty ponies and they keep him fairly busy because <laughs> they spend a lot of time trying to work out how they can get through the fence and yeah. ruin it. Moving a business can you've got to sort of start again almost from scratch and, and build it back up was it a bit of a step back to come up here? Absolutely yeah we were established down there and mm. even though there's more riding schools down there, the bigger population, we had to start at the bottom again. It's just coming to its fore now. It's like we run um, holiday camps. During the year I was getting one and two people and this time we've had both camps are full and it's just slowly building. I'm getting more during the week now, I'm getting more adults. There's a lot of adults who probably wanted to ride as a kid and never got the opportunity. They get to an adult age and they think, oh, it's on my bucket list, I want to ride a horse. Mm. So you take anyone, even if they've never seen a horse before? Absolutely. That's probably our target area. And urban kids who aren't ever going to own their own horse, more so than people with their own horses. Virginia saw the benefit as a young one being able to get out and about with friends mm. and ride a horse, you know, and now she's turned it into a, not only a passionate interest but uh, as a means of income to assist other people in making those same decisions and I think that's very important because it builds their character I mean I've been witness to a lot of Virginia's early students who have now grown up and um, into you know lovely young people um, and uh, they'll tell you a lot of their development was because of the relationship they had with Virginia learning responsibility accountability for their actions um, and and that's has happened by being in touch with horses. Now, you've got to go round. You know how to go round? Yeah. That's really good. He likes that, Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. You're a bit good. He's a bit good. He's a bit silly. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? His visa? That's his um. What's that? His passport. Robert Cordaro and his son Matt are looking over old documents and photos of their family. That's, that's, I think that's Grandma's ticket to Australia. Hello, I'm Kate Stevens. Robert is sharing his family story with me as they reflect on a century of making wine on the same property in the Margaret River wine region of southwest Western Australia. His grandfather, Cesare, an Italian migrant, moved to this region in the early 1920s. More than 100 years ago, the area was very different to the landscape you see today of lush green vineyards, top-rated restaurants and rural spa retreats. It was sort of stepping out into the unknown, really, coming to where there's not the civilisation, like it was just bush, and that's uh, my grandmother commented all the time about how they come to this bush. And the road to Margaret River was only a dirt gravel road. His grandfather had moved to the region to work the land. They come to Australia after the war. There was a lot of people that, that migrated to Australia and he was part of that and he was able to take up the land there and carve it up. Yeah, he, they cleared the, 
the land and run a few cows and like milked a few cows few pigs it was all about survival they didn't have lots so they they just gradually built from that and like many italian families the cordaros liked their wine but the only way to get it was to make it i think that would have been a very important part of their tradition because they have wine every day if they don't make it they they'd have to they wouldn't wouldn't have it so very important part of their culture and and everyday life there was already vines vineyards here in the area like the Maleri family I think they planted here in Yellingup in the 1915 but there was some also like the Spanish planted out in Yongarilla up there even earlier than that that was a European tradition where they brought the the vines with them they would have brought them in their suitcases so there wasn't much quarantine then they would have just brought the cuttings with them and planted them. It's a similar story for many European families that migrated to WA back in the early 20th century. Wine journalist Ray Jordan co-authored a book on the history of the Margaret River region. What would happen is that and it happened with the the first fleet under uh, Captain Sterling where the cuttings were generally bought from South Africa for that time but the Europeans, yes, they. My understanding is they probably did put them in their in their suitcases, uh, might have packed them with a bit of soil and so forth, and then brought them over. It accounts for the fact that some of the early varieties they were planting were a little bit obscure. They were varieties that obviously came from parts of the rural uh, areas that they were from, uh, you know, in Italy um, and Spain for that matter. Yeah, they were they were coming out. Uh, in about from about 1906, I think, uh, both Spanish and Italian. He said some research showed wine was being made in WA even earlier than that. Certainly wine was being produced earlier in the 20th century, but discovered further we dug that the strong indications of wine being produced from grapes planted down in that uh, southwest region, probably from the middle of the 19th century. They apparently used to trade some of the wine that they produced uh, with the American whalers who came past there at that time and uh, they'd have some uh, provisions that they would find useful from uh, these uh, pretty early pioneering settlers. They swapped some wine, which worked quite well. Well, this is the broad accent grand- Grandad had. Uh... Back on the vineyard and Robert Cordaro is inspecting the axe his grandfather used to shape the timber. Yeah, yeah it's quite sharp. Yeah. Still. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100 years on and the family still owns that original land purchased back in the 20s and then some. Today, the Cordaros not only harvest more than 250 acres of grapes, but have a grazing operation and produce like avocados and pomegranates. They're in full swing of celebrating their 100 years of their family winemaking. Robert says his grandfather would be blown away to see just how far the family and the region has come. I think they would be very impressed and um, it's not something they would have envisaged. Even for the whole region, it's just growing in, in such a way that it'd be hard for anyone, my grandparents, to envisage what's happened in this area. Yeah, that's a good photo. And that's in the early days, like, they didn't have bulldozers, so they ring-barked all the trees with an axe so that they'd die and... and I think that's my father on a, on a tractor and a rotary hoe working the ground. Robert Cordaro, he was looking through some old family photos as his family marks 100 years of growing grapes and making wine in the Margaret River region of WA. He spoke to reporter Kate Stevens. You can read more of the Roberts family story. Just head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. You'll find us under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you for Country Breakfast. Still to come, the high school students who are taking their lessons in the great outdoors as demand grows for nature schooling. And we'll meet the carpenter and kindergarten teacher who've taken to the farming lifestyle, raising small, wriggly little livestock. So we've got these lovely big covers that relate the Western sun. Rowan and Ellie Watson couldn't be prouder about having worms, millions of them. Oh, wow, you're scraping back the surface and it is just alive with worms. Yeah, so that's our harvesting technique. We use the food, we keep them at the top, and then from there we can harvest the worms. In 2014, the carpenter and his kindergarten teacher wife were working in outback Cloncurry when his uncle posed a question that would change the course of their lives. I was down on 
holidays and he come and said to me, what are you doing when you finish out west? And I said, I don't know. He said, do you want to come grow worms? And I said, you've got to be crazy. That can't be a thing. But it is a thing. And Stephen Watson, an early adopter of commercial vermiculture in Australia, that's worm farming, convinced his nephew that he was serious. And he said at the rate it was growing and he only had a small block, so he could only get to a certain size and that was it. So he said, do you want to buy a farm and start growing worms? And so I came home and have a chat with Ellie and we said, well, let's give it a go. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm visiting Rowan and Ellie Watson at their worm farm at Stony Creek in southeast Queensland. After deciding to give worm farming a go, the couple moved quickly. Within the year, they'd packed up their lives, scouted for land, and settled here on this property, not far from the Woodford Folk Festival site. They started with just nine raised beds. Now they have 138, with recycled tin roofing, shade cloth and sprinklers to keep the worms moist and safe from ever-optimistic predators. The cane toads and the birds are your biggest thieves. Especially on the warm nights and the humid nights like we've got right now, a lot of the big fellas will just sort of poke their heads out and go for a bit of a look around. And when they do that, a lot of time the cane toads are waiting for them. So we spend a lot of nights with a bucket and a glove and torch and... Yeah, try and minimise those numbers off. Their business, Rural Earthworms, grows reds, tigers and African nightcrawlers for domestic composting worm farms. We collect all these animal manures, it gets pasteurised, so we can burn off any weed seed or any sort of bad pathogens and then we start the composting process and then basically at the right time we can put it into a mixer we mix in lime and cornmeal we feed our beds every friday harvesting packing and deliveries take another two days the family supplies a national company that transports their worms to bunnings stores throughout northern new south wales and queensland householders use them to keep kitchen vegetable scraps out of landfill composting worms convert organic waste into nutrient-rich garden fertilizer in the form of worm tea and castings or worm poo. Most of your reds and your tigers are normally only about 75 millimetres long, whereas your night crawlers can go 150 mil up to sort of 250, if not, I have seen bigger. I've seen them as long as my arm. <laughs> Business has boomed, spiking during the pandemic. Every week they consistently sell around 150 large and 120 small boxes of earthworms. The last few weeks have been both exciting and intense for the couple. Their uncle retired and 58 new worm beds have been carefully relocated from his farm. Mr Watson never imagined that business would get this big. I kind of always just assumed that it would sort of stay as a bit of a hobby to work in with my carpentry, but once it sort of got going and we started getting a lot of beds and that demand was there, we sort of found that, okay, well, it wasn't really worth doing the carpentry anymore. The worms needed the time. So we just sort of, that's when we started investing in more worm beds, more infrastructure and just trying to keep up with it and it's been great it's really especially today to look around and see all these worm beds in the new areas yeah it's really amazing they also collect worm castings and bag them for sale to locals 18 kilos in a large bag and that's enough for about three square meters of garden mix it into about that top sort of 10 centimeters of soil because that's your root zone for a lot of your veggies and your flowers basically the nutrients from there will spread out We did a test in one of these bags and it was a year later and it was still fine. It was just put up in the cupboard, out of the sun and yeah, perfect. Ellie Watson manages marketing and orders as well as helping her husband with social media. A lot of people don't even know that worm farmers exist so it's always interesting talking to different people and helping them with their worms and their gardens. And I get to pass all the interesting questions on to Rowan. I call him the worm guru. Earthworms are hermaphrodites which means they have both male and female sexual organs. Your reds and tigers they will have to find a similar size worm so they can't mate with a worm that's not the same size because they won't line up together and when you find a pair of worms they look like someone's tied them in a knot. Being hermaphrodites they both will exchange sperm for their eggs so they've both got eggs they've both got sperm so they swap and then they go off in their own directions and basically lay their eggs as they travel. African nightcrawler worms, which are also popular as fish bait, can produce cocoons with or without copulation through an asexual reproduction process. The term is parthenogenesis, so they can actually fertilise their own egg. Ellie Watson, what do you like about being a worm farmer? The lifestyle is definitely the best. We get to work from home and it's different. It's a nice break from teaching. And yeah, and it's lovely that we can involve the whole family. And speaking of family, you're expecting <laughs> very soon, hopefully within the next three weeks. <laughs>
<laughs> and you've got two littlies already? Yes. So Jack's four and Molly will be two. They must just absolutely love having all this area to be able to run around. Yes, they're um, naked and wild and free children, I think. That's <laughs> the best way to describe them. Yeah, no, they're great. And it's such a beautiful lifestyle for them. They always help with the worms and lots of animals to look after and, yeah, just freedom. It's the start of term at the Nature School in Port Macquarie and students are busy catching up after their summer break. Among them are the school's first ever secondary students. The school's just expanded to extend from kindergarten to year seven and the year seven students are in high spirits on their first day. My name's Anwen Pullen. The thing that most excited me about going to the nature school is it's so much different to other schools. It's like smaller and it's more welcoming and you get res more respect and you get cared for a lot more than being in a massive school with tons of kids. I love it. It's a great way to reconnect with nature. My name is Connor Van Rensburg. What I like about this school, the teachers are very welcoming. They treat you with respect. The lessons are fun and mud is also very fun and there's lots of mud here. Hello, I'm Emma Siossian and I'm meeting some of the first students to study at secondary level at this independent school on the New South Wales mid-north coast, which has a focus on nature and outdoor learning. The nature school intends to keep adding a grade level each year until it extends to year 10 in 2026. The head of the school, Catherine Shaw, says families are increasingly looking for something a bit different to the mainstream education model. So for a school that started with 22 students uh, five or six years ago, we're up to 140 students in the school this year and there's a wait list on almost every grade. So the school is full, we're at capacity. I think people are looking, they really are looking for something different and we have such stressed teenagers People are looking for a place where we can embrace what it means to be a teenager, a young person today, without that high pressure. Learning is still the most important thing, but we can do it in a less stressful environment. The amount of time our students spend outside and spend in the real world is quite unique to us. They still have classrooms, multiple classrooms for math, science, English, humanities, but we embrace the rest of the world as our classroom too. A beach can be your classroom. The main philosophy of the Nature School is to deliver the New South Wales syllabus of the standard Australian curriculum in a different way. And the school has also adopted a different model for its secondary program. Our secondary classes will remain small. We think that's a strength of our school, so only 20 students in a year group. So we've really adopted quite a unique middle school model here to ease that transition for students from the single teacher they've had in their primary years. Um, a bit of a step between that and the multiple teachers they might normally experience in a mainstream secondary school. So for our students they'll have two core teachers, one who takes the math, science, technology load, one who takes the English, humanities and arts load and then an overlap between those two teachers in the middle of the week. So essentially the students have two teachers rather than seven. How does that work? Do you find you just integrate across different subject areas? Yeah, we really value integration at the Nature School. It's a strength of our programming in primary school and we wanted to hold true to that as we developed our secondary program while still making sure that we meet all the curriculum requirements and ensure that our students can be eligible for the ROSA when they get to year 10. In primary school our students have those adventure days out in the community all the time. In secondary they become field studies days which are really more about students having the opportunity to engage in scientific skills, geographic fieldwork skills in the field which is why we call them field studies. And we'll be accessing some community assets like the local zoo, the local university and a range of natural habitats for our students. I'm Zulu Britos. The nature school's not really strict and um, it's like a family. My name is Adrian Taylor. It's a very rewarding opportunity to learn at this school. Like if you make a mistake then the teacher will like gently correct you. Layla Bannon. I was very excited when I found out that they were starting a high school because when I was at my old school the fact of going to high school was scaring me but 
now that I'm at the nature school, the fact of going to high school excited me because the teachers are so kind and caring. Hi, my name is Julian Bird. You make friends like on your first day and it's just awesome to be here. One of the school's Year 7 teachers is Lloyd Godson, who co-founded the Nature School back in 2015. I had the unique opportunity last year to come and work in primary school. That was a bit out of field for me. I normally teach secondary, so I got to come and experience the school after a bunch of years and see how it had grown and get to know how things work here. Um, so I feel pretty honoured to be like one of the founding secondary school teachers now after like five or six years um, following the foundation of the school. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I think a lot of students um, in traditional larger school settings struggle with um, shifting around so much in the day and moving between subjects and uh, going from having one classroom teacher to like six or seven. So I think nature school uh, secondary is a really nice uh, transition from primary into secondary. You get to know the students really well, like you're doing primary, you spend a lot of time with them. Catherine Shaw says overseeing the school's growth from its tiny beginnings has been tough but rewarding. Do you look back and think where you started and sometimes just shake your head at where you've come to? <laughs> Once a week. <laughs> and it's been such a beautiful privilege to get to lead this school, to get to be part of it, but it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm so proud of what the whole community at the Nature School has achieved and so, so excited for what still lies ahead. Catherine Shaw, who's the head of the Nature School based in Port Macquarie on the New South Wales mid-north coast, where she spoke to our reporter, Emma Siosian. Before that, Jennifer Nichols brought us the story of husband and wife Rowan and Ellie Watson, who are growing earthworms and loving the farming lifestyle on their property in south-east Queensland. For more on both of those stories and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, head to the RN homepage and hit the Programs tab, where you'll find Country Breakfast. South African farm production is being hit by rolling blackouts as the country deals with an energy crisis. Just as farmers there, like their fellow primary producers around the world, are dealing with soaring input costs. Australia and South Africa share many of the same climatic conditions, and therefore climate change is playing out in a similar way in both countries. I remember as Australia's recent drought was reaching its worst point, and we were talking about all those towns approaching day zero of their drinking water, the South African city of Cape Town was facing a similar fate. Wanderlei Salobo is a columnist for Business Day, The Herald and Farmers Weekly in South Africa, as well as the Chief Economist of the Agricultural Business Chamber, a lecturer in Agricultural Economics at Stellenbosch University, and a podcast host and an author, among other things. Every day he's thinking about agriculture and food production in South Africa, and I was stoked when we managed to find a time to get stuck into all things ag in his home country. Wanderlei Salobo, welcome to Country Breakfast. Thanks for having me on, Clint. It's a pleasure. Let's start with energy. How severe is the current load shedding practice? And is it worse in the countryside than it is in the cities? It's quite severe, uh, uh, Clint, and it's negatively affecting a, a large share of agriculture. Because to give you just a, a glimpse of how energy dependent South Africa's primary agriculture is, we derive roughly about half of the farming income. Uh, from the farms that are heavily heavy users of agriculture through irrigation and some, of course, in the poultry and the dairy space. So the current blackout, it goes into different stages. We have what we call stage one, stage two. That means how many hours you wouldn't have uh, electricity. On stage two, you wouldn't have electricity, say, for about four hours a day in different two-hour slots. But when it goes beyond that stage, let's say we're on stage three all the way to stage five, then the hours could stretch to about six to nearly eight hours for some. And for the farms that are under irrigation, that's where we are experiencing a huge challenge. And those that are in the poultry production space, we have already seen a high level of mortality there. In the dairy industry, uh, milk is going bad in some of the farms. We are seeing uh, that challenge. So it presents a food security risk. And I would say in the countryside, it's a, it's a major crisis that we, we're currently facing right now. Is there always a degree of load shedding in South Africa that's particularly bad at the moment, or is it a new practice? This is a new practice. We've had load shedding in various intervals since around about 
2008. But I mean, we then went for years without actually seeing that. It's the first time now that we're seeing it as severe as uh, as in the present. In fact, starting from January this year, that's where everybody saw that we have a crisis in our door. If you think back last year, there were certain months where you would have load shedding and then you'll go smartly for a long period of time. And I think if you are farming or you are in any business, if it happens to be stage one or stage two, which was not as frequent uh, for, for most of the past few years, have the energy backup generators that will help you to get through that. But most of the people's backup generators, they can only do two hours. And some that have solar panels and biogas energy uh, for energy generation, uh, those usually take for a few hours. No one anticipated that we would need power for this long. You mentioned some people are using generators. What are farmers doing to adapt to this? The farmers uh, this time around, they've actually looked into this load shedding to say, can we look at it uh, uh, and also as, as an advantage for greening the South African agricultural sector, making sure that the solar farms are, 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 are put up in place and then some that can generate power using biogas can do that. So they are all of these own generation, but more to the green side that people are thinking about. And the South African government is also thinking of the ways of saying, how do we subsidize our own generation in the farm so that the farmers can put their own energy generation? And of course, over time, there is a thinking that maybe this the South African state-owned energy utility, ESCOM, can buy back some of the energy from some of these farms that they won't be using either in winter or during the day if they only use their energy at night uh, for, for irrigation. So those are some of the things that I look we are looking at. There's legislative work that is happening, but also thinking about how do we set up subsidies for own generation in the farms. And some farmers who have a good balance sheet have already started to put some of these alternative energy sources in their farms. And has the load shedding come about um, since last year? Is is it linked to the Ukraine war when we saw electricity generation just get more expensive generally because of the lack of gas? What brought this load shedding crisis on? In the South African case, it's more of the ageing infrastructure of our uh, own uh, power supply. If you think about ESCOM power plants, there's a lot of ageing of that, but there's also corruption which many people in the world, they've heard about what we call the state capture in South Africa, which was linked with the previous president, President Zuma. So during that era, there was a lot of mismanagement of funds, but also mismanagement of the infrastructure. So it's a combination of all of those things. But over time, we've also seen South Africa's consumption of energy increasing, while the investments on generating uh, more energy was actually fairly uh, muted or, or since 2008 or so. So there was that challenge. And of course, we were using also diesel to power up wind turbines and the other things, which then links to the Russia-Ukraine uh, war because the diesel prices and the energy prices in general have been uh, increasing. And that, of course, makes it very expensive uh, for South Africa to continue heavily relying on that route. But I would say then it's both the global issues uh, and more so uh, the domestic ones. And given it's been in place for roughly a year, you know, a total season of production for many commodities, what's it actually cost farmers so far? We we are still trying to, to estimate uh, all of the costs in South Africa, but right now it's well over 1 billion rands um, that we, 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 we see already cost, over 1 billion South African rands that has cost farmers uh, so far. And of course, load shedding only intensified a lot in January. It's been a month where we've actually seen in intensified loading. Before that, for March of last year, it was still at manageable stages where you would see stage two, stage one, and some days you'll go for weeks without actually being load shed, and farmers were able to manage their production system. And the, this can uh, affect both the farming side, but also the food processing uh, side, as mm. well as the beverages processing side. So it's a both value chain situation to the extent that in South Africa now we are thinking to say, look, how do we ensure that the food, beverages and fiber industry is actually slightly insulated from heavy load shedding so that it doesn't end up presenting the food security risks to the country? That is uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you on the show, because you did some writing around the fact that with the grid so unstable and this load shedding, it actually does present like a, a national security risk. 
Absolutely. These are some of the key things then that we, we currently thinking about, which is why the private sector of South Africa with government and ESCOM has actually been in some of the conversation today. Is there a way we can lessen the, the, the energy um, blackouts for those areas that are largely irrigation or are in food production? But of course, that all depends technically about how everyone is linked to the grid. But it is one of those priorities. You're listening to Country Breakfast on RN. I'm speaking with writer, economist and podcaster Wanderlei Salobo this morning. Let's turn to weather now. Australia and South Africa seems to experience the La Nina-El Nino climate patterns in many of the same ways. So what has the recent long La Nina cycle looked like in South Africa? The long La Nina of about our forces in have been quite favourable for South Africa. It brought above normal rainfall, which assisted us a lot. And in fact, we saw agricultural output and exports reaching record level in some years. If you think about 2021, for example, South Africa's agricultural exports reached a record uh, level in volume and in value. And in value terms, that was about $12.4 billion. So it's been very uh, favorable. But of course, right now we are seeing a change towards an El Nino which I believe uh, the colleagues at the the Australian Bureau of Meteorology and some uh, in the U.S. at uh, Columbia University, the Earth Institute there, they've put up estimates saying, look, from around about October this year, we may see a change towards an El Nino. And that to us, it means that we will be seeing a break from the the favorable uh, rainy season to more of a drier weather pattern. And I guess that's the the same uh, outlook that the folks in much of Western Australia and even parts of the Southern will pretty much be experiencing. Can you talk a little bit more about the dynamic between the south of the continent and the north? Because while South Africa is getting really good seasonal conditions, really robust production during La Nina, the north is plunged into drought and then it flips around. So does that uh, have an impact on uh, the direction of exports or, or the food production? It, it certainly does have an impact on food production because what we tend to see is when there is a La Nina, much of Southern Africa, think about South Africa, Lesotho, Swaziland, Zimbabwe, Namibia, all of these countries in the southern part, and in fact, even Malawi, they get to have fairly good uh, rainfall. But if you look far east, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa in that region, they would tend to have relatively drier weather conditions when there is a La Nina. Now, that usually gives this disparity when you think about the food security conditions where in East Africa, there will be all of these food insecurity uh, talks and and people will be really in, in harsh conditions. And in Southern Africa, it will be favorable. Now, with the switch to an El Nino, we're likely to see East Africa getting good rainfall and seeing some improvement in agriculture, while in Southern Africa, it will fairly be dry. Of course, South Africa, with a slightly uh, more industrialized farming sector, could even in deep drought uh, season still achieve some level of good production compared to its neighboring countries. Think about Zimbabwe, Malawi, Zambia, and the others which are really exposed when it's harsh weather conditions. So those are the countries where that we worry a lot about, about food security in general in Southern Africa when we see a change to an El Nino. Here in Australia, the latest La Nina weather last year brought some really severe flooding rains to much of the east coast of Australia. So with the current predictions by those agencies you mentioned before saying that we might have just a middle year, not a strong La Nina, not a strong El Nino, kind of a normal year. A lot of farmers, especially in the northeast of Australia, are looking forward to that. How are farmers feeling about the waning of the La Nina in South Africa? In South Africa, farmers are are worried because we still have, um, as some of the Australian farmers fresh memories of day zero and we and, and in the 2015-16 drought, which was very difficult for South Africa. So there is a bit of a worry about that. But still, I would say at this moment, not so much because the soil moisture has improved tremendously. Like in Australia, we received uh, excessive rains in some parts of the country to the extent that agricultural production 
was delayed by roughly a month from its usual optimal planting in some parts of the country, particularly central to western South Africa. We saw a delay of a month on grain and all seeds production. So, so much is good, which I think even if we hit then an El Nino as it's expected, we may still have a relatively fair agricultural season in 2023-24. But then if we have another year of an El Nino, that's where I think conditions will start to be harsh. So in a way, I think it's somewhat slightly similar to, to Australia, but I ourselves worry a lot because of those memories of heavy drought. Indeed. This is Country Breakfast on RN. I'm Clint Jasper and my guest is Wanderlei Salobo. Farmers around the world have been dealing with soaring input costs over the past year. How have South Africa's farmers coped with those higher bills for things like fuel and fertiliser? It's been very difficult um, for South African farmers. Uh, and in fact, the, the profit margins have been fairly squeezed. What has assisted a, a little bit is the fact that we managed to achieve higher yields and commodity prices were also uh, are higher, and that uh, uh, assisted the farmers a lot. But if you speak with anyone that is in fruit farming, either in citrus or in apples, uh, pears, they will tell you that the season has been quite difficult for them. Because you have to appreciate that South Africa imports about 80% of its fertilizer consumption. We consume about 2 million tons of fertilizer a year. In agrochemicals, we import about 98% of the agrochemicals that we, 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 we use. So now you had these commodity prices increasing at a global level. But the South African rand was also relatively weak compared to the U.S. dollar. And that adds um, on those inflationary e effects in there. So uh, the, the margins have been, have, been, have been under pressure. But thanks, we had good rainfall, which assisted on a yield perspective and assisted everyone to sort of cope even with those harsh um, uh, input cost prices. And if we turn to consumer-facing prices, I'm imagining the higher input costs that you just discussed combined with some of the issues around food production under the load shedding must be putting a lot of crunch on consumers, uh, people shopping for food in South Africa. I think in, in food price inflation has been a global problem. And in fact, if you look into the EU um, and you look in the US, you think about Brazil, Kenya, they've seen much higher food price inflation um, than in South Africa. South Africa's food price inflation averaged at 9.5% in 2022, the year before that, around about 4.8%. So yes, relatively higher, but I would say it's still better levels than what we saw for much of the world. What has assisted a little bit in South Africa is the fact that uh, we still had large agricultural harvest, but also the food processors, they've somehow managed to absorb some of those costs and not pass them on fully onto the consumer. Uh, but of course, right now with load shedding, which has intensified since January, we worried a lot about food price inflation down the line in the year to say how will conditions look like. Because the other thing that is always important for South Africa is the energy price. Because for food pro production, for food processing, you need the energy. Um, so that's one of those things. For example, for every one rand increase in a liter of petrol in South Africa, that usually translates to about a three cents increase in a price of bread. So it's things like that that we, we are watching. It always helps to be in a country where you're producing and selling overseas much more than you consume domestically. Absolutely. And as a country, we are exporting about 51% of what we produce in South Africa in value terms. Wanderlei Salobo, thank you very much for talking to Country Breakfast. Absolute pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so very much. Wanderlei Salobo is the Chief Economist for the South African Agricultural Business Chamber. He's also a columnist, author and podcast host. And I'll put some links up to his social media and other works on our website. Just search for ABC Country Breakfast. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Angie Grant for bringing Country Breakfast together this week. And I'll leave you in the hands of my fellow Saturday morning colleagues here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.